If you'd open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23, that will be our home this morning. We're in the book of Joshua in our series called The Promised Land. The book of Joshua tells the story of the Israelites having been freed from slavery in Egypt, having wandered for 40 years in the desert due to their sin, finally getting to enter into the land that God has promised them. Now Joshua is their leader, and if you've been with us for the last several months, you know this. And you know that the land, the promised land, was filled with difficulties, challenges, and trials. It served as a great reminder to us that that will always be true. In fact, Jesus Christ told us that in John 13, or 16, 33, when he said, I have told you these things so that me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's a better promise. In this world, you will have trouble. And trouble was ever before the Canaanites. And much of their troubles, much of their difficulties and their trials surrounded the reality of sin and the sin of the Canaanites. Because God had called the Israelites, to be a part of his judgment of the Canaanites for their abundant idolatry. He used them as his tool in judgment. Now it is worth noting that throughout the Old Testament, he also uses pagan nations to discipline the nation of Israel. Both things happen. And why? Why did these things happen? Why are they not all free to live out their own realities? Why are they not free to live out their own truth or their own identity? The answer lies in this. God cares deeply about sin. And his care for sin goes far beyond a call to our personal holiness. It actually goes to a a picture of a father who wants better things for us. A father who has a better desire for us than sin. A father who wants to give us good and precious things and move us past ridiculous, short-sighted lust of our flesh. Let me give you two illustrations to help us get our mind around this. On several occasions, I've told you the story of one of my kids, who occasionally in his rebellion, when he would be frustrated at his parents, would run into the bathroom to touch the toilet. That was his willful rebellion. Breaking one of the boundaries his parents had set for him. So you have to step and ask, why did we create a boundary about touching the toilet? Well, first, it's a toilet. Touching a toilet is pretty silly. And it's pretty pointless. But more than that, toilets are dirty, they're germy, and they can do all kinds of bad things for you. There's nothing that you'd ever gain from touching a toilet. That was one of my toddler's views of rebellion in life. Currently reading the autobiography of Jack Deere, a former pastor and an Old Testament theology professor, who, by the way, is neither of both, neither of them now. That's a longer story. But he writes a book called Surprised by the Darkness, His Life Story. And one of the first stories he tells in his book, one that stayed on the forefront of my mind, 
is one afternoon when he was a young boy, as his father got in the car to leave for the day, his dad looked out the window of his car and yelled at him. And this is what his dad said. Jackie, whatever you do, don't put gravel in the gas tank of the truck. Jack goes on to write, then it had never occurred to him to put gravel in the gas tank of a car before. He'd never thought of it. He'd never conceived of it. And at the beginning part of his morning, it didn't occur to him. But the longer that day went on, the more he began to be consumed by one idea. Putting gravel in the gas tank of his dad's pickup. And before the day had ended, he had filled his dad's gas tank with gravel. Of course. Now, I've told you and given you an illustration of one of my kids as a toddler, Jack Deere as a young boy. And it's easy for us to look and to see sin and the power of sin at work in those stories and to laugh at them because sin is small. And yet we fail to realize that sin grows up with us. And it gets bigger and sometimes stays just as silly if we had a different perspective. This morning as we turn to Joshua 23, we're going to see Joshua having walked with the Israelites through battle after battle, challenge after challenge in the promised land. We're going to see Joshua, who God has been epically faithful to and through, still seeing the lust of sin in the eyes of his people. So turn with me to Joshua 23, and we'll dig into the text this morning. A long time afterward, verse 1, When the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. Now, if you're here with us last week, you'd note that this is the, sounds very similar to chapter 13. You should know that's because this chronologically follows chapter 13. So if you've wondered what happened to chapters 14 through 22, they exist. We're not discounting them, but it, for the most part, it's Joshua allotting out the land to the tribes of Israel. It's a lot of details. And so chapter 23 follows chapter 13 when God had told him he was old and advanced in, in years. And now he's telling his people this. Very much following the example of Moses, who in Deuteronomy 31 addressed the nation before his death. And so here we find Joshua, old and advanced in his years, addressing the people. And this is what he has to say, verse 3. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Now this is his first statement to them. He wants to remind them of all they had seen. Of all that the Lord had accomplished for them. Of all that the Lord had accomplished on their behalf. And he wants it to be put before them again. That this is the Lord's doing. It wasn't theirs. And that God wasn't done. Verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes. Those nations that remain. Along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. You could go back and read chapters 14 to 22 to see that allotment. Verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. 
Joshua is pushing before them a repeated promise that God will be faithful. Just as God has done, God will do. Just as God has provided, he will provide. Just as God has given you the victory, it will be God who will give you the victory. And he gives them this, this pattern that they've got to look to. Look and see what God has done. Look and see at how faithful God has been to carry you along and know that he's going to continue to be faithful. But you also see the line of human responsibility in that. Because you've got to trust his faithfulness. And you've got to step out in his faithfulness. And you've got to lay claim to what God has promised you. That's what he's telling these Israelites. God has done the work. Go lay claim of what he has promised you. And you see the theme of the book of Joshua over and over again. That God will do the fight. God will fight for you. And so in verse 6, Israel gets called up. Which is to say that Joshua, who gets called by God at the beginning of this book, passes on the same calling... And then warns them. Verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you. Or make mention of the names of their gods. Or swear by them. Or serve them. Or bow down to them. As Joshua is putting before the Israelites in the promised land, we do need to see that he does not say, you've arrived, take it easy. He does not see, now's the time to invest in a hammock and some lemonade. We see this push towards an an increased faithfulness that having come this far, having battled so much, You must stay strong and you must stay obedient. It says, follow the Lord. Study his book. Follow his book. Obey his book. Stay pure. And what you start to see is the role of strength and the role of obedience is, in some regards, to avoid idolatry. And in some regards, something even more important than that. Because we don't just push back on idolatry. He gives them the solution in verse 8 by saying, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. That's the solution. That's the plan. Friday morning, we uh, have a group of men called the Contenders. We're walking through, just finished a book of 1 Timothy, and I... I have a hard time sometimes when I'm thinking through everything I'm going to preach, not taking most of my message and bringing it that way. I use this illustration with them. I'll bring it to you. When he says, cling to the Lord in verse 8, cling to the Lord your God. One of the coolest sports, I don't know if you can call it a sport I've ever watched, um, is mutton busting. Has anyone ever seen this? I have long desired to get my son involved with this, much to the chagrin of his mother, who would have no part of it. If you were to mutton bust, you take a, a young boy and you put a hel- I, I suppose they probably do it with girls too. I've just never seen it. Uh, they put a helmet on you and they, they thump you on the back of a sheep. And then while on the back of the sheep, they spank the sheep 
And it's like your intro into bull riding. Well, if you're going to be successful at mutton busting, what you see is a little guy on there digging his fingers into the wool of this sheep, holding on for all he's got. That's what Joshua's telling you to do here with the Lord. Dig your fingers into the wool of the sheep. Dig your fingers into the, to the lamb. Cling to him. That, that's how you stay strong. That's how you stay obedient. We don't wander on our own ways to see what trouble we can get ourselves in. No, you stick your face, your body, wrap it around the thing and hold on. Because it's about to get rocky. That's how you stay out of idolatry. You cling to the Lord, verse 9. For the Lord has driven you out, the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, he's now going to point out what God has done with and through them through his strength. No man has been able to stand before you to this day. Listen to the sentence. One man of you put to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Do you see the strength that the Lord your God has for you, that a thousand will flee? When you're clinging to him. That's what he's encouraging them to do. That they would find their strength in the Lord. That they would cling to him. And he goes back and he pulls the language of Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. With all of your soul and with all of your might. That's probably what I'd tell a little guy holding on to a sheep. Hug that thing with your soul, your heart, and all your might. That's what you got. That's what he's putting before them. Love the Lord your God. And then he warns them. And listen to these warnings in Joshua. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations, remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you. Do you see the contrast starting to come out? He's giving you this picture that you're going to cling to something and it's either going to be the Lord or it's going to be sin. And Joshua keeps going, verse 13. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. That's a warning. And the warning was not merely that God would stop working for them. Verse 16, skip a couple. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. God, what Joshua is trying to put before these Israelites, 
is that God took idolatry, God took purity, and God took sin so seriously that he was willing to judge the Canaanites, even calling them to be completely smited off the earth. And he warned the Israelites that if they followed the Canaanites, that they would meet the same judgment. That's a warning. If you persist in this, and if we were to walk through 14 through 22, you'd find several places that would lead us into the book of Judges to find that they were not faithful in doing all God had commanded them. And there are at least three places in that section where it says, and those people still live with you to this day. So we know Israel wasn't faithful. Friends, four months ago, we started talking about sanctification. We started a four-week series in January called The Big Words, trying to develop an understanding of positional sanctification, which is also called justification. The reality that when you've believed in Jesus Christ, when you've believed in his death and his resurrection, that all of your sins are forgiven. And that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, with all of your sins being forgiven, now when God the Father sees you, he sees you not in your sin, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Somebody yell amen. Amen. That is a rich and stout biblical truth. But that's not all of sanctification. We also work to develop an understanding of progressive sanctification. That is the process by which you become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That having been saved by grace through faith, you're saved. This is not a push towards any sense of legalism. It's not a push towards any sense of earning your salvation. But once been, you have been saved, you're slowly transformed into his image. I bring that up now because as we walked through that series then, I told you we were preparing you for the book of Joshua. And in preparation that as we walk through Joshua, we would need a biblical theology, a practical theology for the book of Joshua to rest upon. That is, how do you grow in sanctification? How do you grow in a knowledge of who God is and what he's done in your life? How do you preserve an understanding of saved by grace through faith and yet being called to something else? Friends, I would say it's the same way the Israelites claim victory in the promised land. Let me bring you back to Joshua 23.3. I want you to see this. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. What Joshua tries to do is get them to look back and to see what God has accomplished for them on their behalf. You rest in the positional sanctification of Jesus Christ. What God has already done on your behalf. We're taking the Old Testament, we're cranking it into the New Testament and bring it to our context When God tells Joshua, and Joshua tells his people, how do you go forward? You go forward knowing what God has done on your behalf, that you have been completely justified. Verse 5. And the Lord your God will push them back before you, 
and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God had promised you. See, God doesn't just stop with, I've done a lot of great things for you in your past. Just, you're marked, continue on your merry way. No, that's not the promised land. God says the Lord your God will push them back before you. He'll drive them out of your sight. There's still work to be done. And you shall still possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. That God has lots of promises for you that exist in salvation and after salvation. That we can have this concept that God's grace only exists for my salvation but not for my holiness. But God has something great for you. That's why this is a Hebrews 10, 14 consideration. That's the verse we use to talk about sanctification. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. They know who they are. Talking about the Israelites. And yet they still have to possess the land. Just as the Lord your God had promised them. They had to step forward believing the truth that God had declared about them. For you and I, that is a Romans 6 moment. That we reckon ourselves dead to sin. Recognizing that the battle is already declared to be over. So we walk forward in faith and obedience. In the victory that Christ has already given us. Now, we could stop here. And if we did, we would have a nice message with some nice truth that we could try to live out. We might even be encouraged and exhorted well. But we'd miss the point of Joshua 23. Because in Joshua 23, God's desire for the Israelites, speaking through Joshua, was not merely that they would understand what God has done, not merely that they would be faithful in it. God had a heart and a desire to warn them. Look back at verse 16. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. There is a strong warning in Joshua, where Joshua looks into the hearts and the lives of his people, and he sees the lust of the flesh like a boy desiring to put gravel in a gas tank, like a kid who wants to touch a toilet. He sees his people wavering. And he doesn't just say, you fought the good fight. Hang on. Cling to it. No, he tells them the fight isn't over. It isn't close to be over. And you must cling to Jesus Christ. And we could take verse 16 and write it off as an Old Testament warning. But I do want you to know that these warnings are echoed in the New Testament. Let me show you. In the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, chapter 2, you have Jesus talking through John, writing to the seven churches. We'll comment to two of them. These are the words of Jesus Christ. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, if you pause there, there's just something about that like, "Mm, Lord, thanks for knowing where I'm at. But that's not the message. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You find a similar warning in the New Testament that you find in the Old Testament given to the Israelites. Here you find it, God giving it through Jesus Christ to the churches, that it's not just enough to do some good things. Your heart matters. Your love matters. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And there's a warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. God says, if you're not careful, if you are not mindful, if you dabble in sin and think it doesn't matter, if you hang out in the realm of impurity and you think you're immune, if you get complacent with sin, I will remove your lampstand. And you just think that's a lamp. God says, I'll remove all the influence you have. I will make you nothing. And we could think how evil of God, how mean of God, how spiteful of God, but I would argue quickly how loving and great and righteous of our God. For dear friends, he does not just love you. He loves your neighbors. He loves your coworkers. And if God walks with you and you walk with him and you claim Jesus Christ, yet walk in rampant sin and others around you watch that rampant sin, do you think God should be pleased with that? Do you think God should look down upon you and bless that and say, man, this is what I want a servant of mine to look like? Or would it be that God in his great love for all of us, that he would look down at sin and say, something's got to change with this brother? Something's got to happen to shake this situation up. That's the warning you find in the New Testament. Repent of your sin. God takes it so seriously in the Old Testament that whole peoples are wiped out. And in the New Testament, we find these same warnings. Revelation 3, I'll give you Laodicea. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God says, I'll vomit. I'm going to throw you up. Verse 17. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, God sees you as you are and says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Quit living a life that lives with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. God calls us to account for his sin, and there are strong warnings in here. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, as we've walked through sanctification, we've walked into the book of Joshua, we've seen God take sin and others so seriously. Heed the warning. For it is far easier in us to see sin in others than it is to see sin in ourselves. That we can easily look to others and see the judgment that they need, the judgment that they might require, and think we're off easy. And the Bible strongly warns us against that. If you're visiting us, and this is Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day. Two years ago, I got to preach on the reality of hell on Mother's Day. I love mothers. I'm for you. But we value God's word. We teach God's word. And we love you enough to say what the Bible says to you is true. That God takes sin so seriously. So if you find yourself in serious, unrepentant sin, would you just check your heart? Would you seek after him? Would you strive to cling to Jesus? the author and the perfecter of our faith. Friends, you'll find the mercy and the grace that you so desperately need in his throne room when you seek after him. He wants to transform you. He wants to change you. And he wants to be at work within you. Let me pray for us. Father, in your word, it tells us that your word is spirit-breathed, that it comes to us from you. And that's useful for teaching and training and rebuke and reproof and training in righteousness. Father, your word's going to point out our errors. It's going to point out our mistakes. And you do it because you love us. Your word's going to tell us when we're wrong. And Father, if we get real honest, we're wrong a lot. I stand here saying I'm wrong a lot. Father, I choose sin regularly. I choose idolatry. I choose me. Father, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our sins? Would you call us towards repentance? Father, so that we could see you as our daddy, holding us, loving us, restoring us, showering your grace and mercy upon us. 
Father, that we might live a life free of idolatry and worthless pursuits so that we could live the life, Father, that you have for us, knowing the riches of your blessing, the wealth of your presence. Thank you for your word, and that we find truth. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ben, for the uh, message this morning. As tough as it is and as sweet as it is yet to see Jesus in that, um, 